so far in the book of Exodus. We have seen the actual Exodus itself, the oppression of the Hebrews in Egypt, Moses fleeing into the wilderness, seeing God at the burning bush, sent back the ten plagues. They fled from the Egyptians and God parted the Red Sea and then brought it back over the Egyptians. And that, of course, is where most of the movies end, but it is not where the book of Exodus ends. We saw them go through the wilderness, dealing with hunger and thirst, seeing the Lord provide water, provide them victory over the Amalekites, and providing manna for them daily. They arrived at Mount Sinai. They agreed to the covenant in chapter 19. And then the Lord appeared on the mountain in glory. You remember that, that theophany that we talked about, an appearance of God. And he spoke out the Ten Commandments. And that's when the people said, uh, Moses, you talk to God from now on. That was terrifying. So Moses went up to the mountain. And over the last three weeks, we looked at what is called, within the book of Exodus, the book of the law, where it actually gives you the laws themselves. We read laws relating to slavery, relating to your ox and what happens if it gores somebody, relating to all sorts of things. And now we are going to come to the end of the, the covenant sequence the making of the covenant in the book of Exodus. And the final part in this day and age of sealing a covenant, this covenant was not just something God did with people. This was something that people did with each other, very similar to a contract, although it was more serious than that. The final part of, of the covenant would be to lay out its consequences for keeping it and for breaking it, and then to seal it with a ceremony. So we saw at the beginning, there was the rehearsal of what God had done for them. There was the initial agreement. Then God presented them with the terms and stipulations of the covenant. Now we're getting to the consequences, and then they're going to seal it with a ceremony. So that's what we will see, that the covenant is finalized and formalized. And then Moses will go back up the mountain to get more revelation from the Lord before he returns again in chapter 32. So as I've said several times along this, this section here, I know these are not the parts that you rush to for your morning devotions. I've got to read Exodus 23. But they're, they're really, I think tonight is a great example of if you read too quickly, you can miss some really cool things. And I had an awful lot of fun studying for this tonight. I think you will too. Not least of all, there is a wealth of Christian symbolism and typology. Of course, if that was where the Lord was always heading to bring the Old Covenant to the New, we should expect that there was all these little seeds planted that would bear fruit when Christ came. So tonight we see the, the, the beginning of the Old Covenant, and we're going to look forward several times to the end of it in Jesus Christ and the New Covenant under which we now live. So let's read verses 20 through 22, and uh, we'll go verse by verse through this section. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. That's worth underlining right there. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Actually, in verse 22, it's kind of fun. He, he doesn't use stative verbs there. He doesn't say, I will be an enemy. He uses the verb form and says, I will enemy your enemies and adversary your adversaries. I don't know quite how we would phrase that in English, but I don't want God to ever enemy me. I can just say that. Well, verse 20 begins the, the end of the commandments of the law and begins its conclusion. And he mentions here the angel of the Lord. 
says, I'm going to send my angel before you. He will go before you and he will lead you. And this is not new in the book of Exodus. We saw in chapter 14, verse 19, that when Pharaoh's army came and pinned them down by the Red Sea, that the pillar of cloud and fire moved between Egypt and the Israelites, but it actually says that the angel of the Lord who was in the cloud moved between. So we've already seen that this is not just a, a natural phenomenon, but that this is in fact the angel of the Lord. So he's not saying this is something new that is going to begin, but he, this is something that is already happening that is going to continue. And this is exactly what we're going to see several times in their wanderings. For example, in Numbers 14, when they decide they're not going to go into the promised land, when the spies bring back the bad report, they say, we're like grasshoppers and they're giants. They say, let's kill Moses and go back to Egypt. It says what happens is that the angel of the Lord, the pillar of cloud and fire, moved between Moses and the people. So you imagine this scene, everybody's getting so angry, so hopped up, they're, they're ready to lynch Moses. And then here comes that pillar of cloud and fire, Vroom, right there in front of, in between Moses and the people. It's God's way of saying, let's all just calm down for a minute and de-escalate this situation. When Miriam and Aaron start murmuring against the Lord, they, God's going to say, Moses, I want you to call Miriam and Aaron to the tabernacle. And they do. And then it says that the glory of the Lord stood before them and spoke to them. So several times we will see that this glory of the Lord, it's called the Shekinah glory of the Lord. It comes from the word Shaken in Hebrew, which means to dwell or to stay. So God's abiding presence, his abiding glory, that the angel of the Lord was in that. And as you probably know, the angel of the Lord is a mysterious figure in the Old Testament. Even if we didn't have these other passages, this verse here would be enough to turn our, our our antennas up a little bit. He says, my name is in him. We've already seen the name of the Lord in the book of Exodus. He says, I am who I am. Now, what angel does God put his name in? And as I've said before, even Jews to this day will refer to God as Hashem, which means the name in Hebrew. They'll call him the name. They won't say God. They'll say the name. And now we're talking about this angel. The word angel just means messenger. But he says, my name, my untouchable, glorious, unspeakable name is in him. We see that the angel of the Lord will lead God's people, command God's people, fight for God's people, even to judge God's people. Because he will not pardon your transgression, meaning he is in a position of authority and judgment over you. Speaking for God. So clearly what you can see is that this angel is God himself. He's doing things that only God can do. And this is how he's been described in other places. In Genesis 16, it says, The angel of the Lord appeared to Hagar. And she says, The Lord was here, the Lord who sees me. Abraham in Genesis 22, when he was going to sacrifice Isaac, the angel of the Lord came and said, Don't do this. I'll provide a sacrifice. Genesis 32, Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord all night long, and he named that place the face of God. Because he knew he had encountered the Lord there. And Moses himself, in chapter 3, verse 2, when he saw the burning bush, he says, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a burning bush. Jacob, when he blesses his sons in Genesis 48, verses 15 and 16, he gives this, this parallel description of who God is before he begins. He says, 
the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. So is he, is he calling upon God twice and then some angel? No. This is Hebrew parallelism. He's repeating the same point in a different way. So he even refers to the Lord as the angel who has redeemed him and calls on him to bless his son. This is very confusing if you do not have the New Testament and you don't believe in the Trinity. We see a figure here identified as God. My name is in him. And yet he, of course, is distinct from the Lord because God is describing him as distinct from himself. This is a Christological figure. This is an example of complex monotheism in the Old Testament. It started with Genesis chapter 1 when he said, in the beginning God created. It uses a plural noun, Elohim, with a singular verb. And that's bad grammar unless it's good theology. This is exactly what the Old Testament was doing. It was preparing us to receive the man, Christ Jesus, who would say things like, before Abraham was, I am. They came to him in the garden and they said, he said, who are you seeking to, to arrest? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am. And they all fell back. This big posse that Judas had riled up. The name of the Lord was in him. And who else is God's ultimate angel, his ultimate messenger, but Jesus Christ? This is an important thing to see here because it prepares the way for sound doctrine later on. And God tells them, my presence is going to go with you. Just as Jesus Christ is with us through his Holy Spirit. And we ought to follow his lead and heed his words because it is Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead. So the point here, God is saying, I will be with you to instruct you and to lead you. I'm not distant. I'm not going to leave you to your own devices. I'm going to go before you. Verses 23 now to, verses, to verse 33. We'll finish the chapter. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. So, these are the stipulations of the covenant, and now he's going to get into the blessings. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water. And I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Okay. So God lays out the blessings of obedience. Deuteronomy will do this at great length. It'll lay out the blessings and also the curses associated with the covenant of the Lord. And he looks to the promised land where, as you know from the book of Joshua, they're going to have to fight 
to drive out the, all these tribes. In the earlier parts of the Bible, it refers to them collectively as the Amorites. Later on, it'll collectively refer to them as the Canaanites. But there were several different tribes, obviously. Earlier, God had told Abraham in Genesis 15, 16, he says, I will not give you the land yet because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. He says, they have not done enough to deserve the judgment that I'm going to pour out upon them. God gave them almost 500 years of grace and they did not repent before the Israelites came in. But the time has ended and it's time for them to go. And he says, when you drive them out, you're also to destroy their false idols, their pillars. These were these great standing stones that they would erect and they would carve often with with prayers to their gods or even uh, carve a relief of their god into the stones. And uh, the Lord says, you're going to smash those things. You're going to, later on, he'll say, burn down their groves and you're going to smash their idols into pieces. Now, the reason the Lord needs to say this, I mean, it seems so silly as they're standing before this mountain that is blazing with the fiery glory of God. But it was taught taught at this time that territorial gods needed to be appeased in order to gain blessings. If you went into Canaan, you needed to serve the Canaanite gods for the land to produce its fruit and for everything to be, be safe for you. This is what you see in 2 Kings 17, when the northern kingdom is taken away and they bring in different people into the land and it says they did not serve the Lord, so God sent lions among them. As I've always said, worst plague I can think of is a plague of lions. And they called to the the kings of Assyria and Babylon and said, we don't know how to worship the gods here. So they sent some of the priests to teach them how to worship the Lord. Unfortunately, they taught them the idolatrous ways of Jeroboam with the golden calves that they worshipped. But it illustrates the point. You thought that if you were in that God's land, you needed to worship that God if you wanted things to go well for you. But God comes in and says, don't mess with that. I will provide all of it for you. You don't need to have me as your number one God. And then I'll go over here and pray to the God of grain every harvest, you know, just in case. He promises them provision. I'll bless your bread and your water. He promises them health. I'll take sickness away from you. He promises them long life and children. He promises them victory over their enemies and security in the land. And in verse 31, he establishes the boundaries of the promised land. He says from the Red Sea. Now the Red Sea, this is that phrase we've seen before, Yam Suf, which is sometimes translated the Sea of Reeds which is another indication to us, Israel's boundary was not to be Egypt, but it was to be what we today call the Red Sea or the the northeastern antenna, as I call it, of the Red Sea, the Gulf of Aqaba. So that's just more reason to believe that that is, in fact, where they crossed the Red Sea because he's saying that's where their border is going to be. That's the Red Sea. To the Sea of the Philistines, which is the Mediterranean Sea. The Philistines were a seafaring people. Many people believe they were actually ethnically Greek, which is why their culture seems very similar to the Grecian and Roman culture in several ways. We'll address that as we come to it. He says to the wilderness, this would be the Negev, the desert in the south, and to the Euphrates. Really in the Hebrew there, it just says the river. Euphrates was the big river to the north of Israel. It's the big river there today, and it's the Euphrates River. So that's a a lot of territory. And it would not be until the times of David and eventually Solomon that they would actually possess all of these things. It's in 1 Kings chapter 9 that it says Solomon finally took over these holdouts that had been rebelling against the, the kings of Israel. 
Because God promised to give them the land slowly. Did you catch that? He says, I'm not going to give it to you all at once. If I give it to you all at once, you drive out all these enemies. Now the land will turn wild against you, and it's going to be more difficult for you. I'm going to do it slowly, piece by piece, so that you will grow in your skill and in your ability to to win these battles, and your, your descendants will multiply, and you'll be able to possess the land fully. And there's something to be said for that, that God very often doesn't give us the whole blessing all at once. He allows you to grow into it. Sometimes you look back and you think, I wanted this, but if I had gotten this 10 years ago, it would have been a disaster. Lord, if you had given me all that money five years ago, I would have blown every penny of it. But now I think I'm a little more responsible and able to handle it. That's how sanctification works. It doesn't happen all at once. It's a lifelong process. But that said, the conquest, which finished under David and Solomon, should have happened faster because the people actually disobeyed these commandments and they did go after other gods. Judges chapter 2 talks about when the, the last generation that had been with Joshua died off. It says they abandoned the Lord the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. Exactly what God told them not to do, and they did it. So they did not receive the fullness of the Lord's blessings. There's something to be said for that too. You want to claim every promise in the book, but if you're walking in sin, God's not blessing that. Not only that, you could actively be preventing something that God would like to do in you by your sin. But do you see that the danger to them was not the power of the enemy, but the subtlety of sin and the temptation, the seduction of idolatry? The Lord goes, I'm not worried about them beating you because they can't beat you. I'm with you. What you need to watch out for is worshiping their gods, coming in and seeing the value of their religion, so-called. And saying, you know, what's the big deal? Why don't, we, why don't we participate in this too? Why don't we be good neighbors and go and worship Baal and worship Asherah? It's the seduction of sin. And I say that the same is true for, for many of us who rest on our laurels too quickly and fall into temptation as Christians. We're walking in the ways of the Lord and we're on the lookout for a frontal assault. Right? If anybody were to come in and say, deny Jesus Christ, we'd say, never! But it's real easy to get lazy in your walk with Jesus and get weakened. And now the enemy is attacking your mind and your heart and your imagination. That's the true danger that the Lord warned them about. It's not that something's going to come and take you away. You know, that's what the New Testament warns us against. Never warns us against the devil coming in and stealing your salvation. But it does warn us against abandoning the Lord Jesus Christ. So watch out for that. Are you protecting yourself against outside attack, but not from the inner temptation? What are the false gods of the people so-called that you're allowing into your house and giving your time and your love and attention that is stealing your love away from the Lord? So that concludes the text of the covenant right there. When we get to the end of chapter 23, that's the book of the covenant that will be referred to several times, and that's what he's talking about. There's much more instruction to come. It's going to be related to how to perform certain sacrifices and rituals and how to build the tabernacle itself. But as far as the laws go in the book of Exodus, that's as far as we're going to get. So let's look now, verses 1 through 8. You'll remember at this point, Moses has been up on the mountain and he's been receiving this from the Lord. And now he's going to come down. Let's read verses 1 through 8 of chapter 24. 
Then he, that is the Lord, said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. So God's telling Moses, I want you to come back and bring some folks with you. So verse 3, Moses came, as in came down, and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, everything we've been reading since the Ten Commandments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. The book of the covenant is what we just finished reading. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So here you have the the ceremony establishing this covenant. God sends Moses back and he reads the book. So he recites what the Lord has said. He writes it down and they agree to all of that. They've already agreed to it, but this is another formal assent to the covenant. And so then Moses builds an altar. And we read of the first commandments in the book of the law after the 10 was about building altars. And they were not to be built from cut stones. They were to be built with either earth or with uncut stones. And they were to be made without stairs. There was to be a ramp that goes up, but that was to preserve modesty. And you have to remember, these altars were, were primitive barbecues. We're going to read about that later when it tells them how to build the bronze altar, that it'll have pans and shovels and things like that. Very mundane for the things of God, you might think. But it's about cleaning it out. It would have smoked the meat, something I love to do very, very much. Would have been better for the Lord, I guess. But he builds this altar, and he's going to sacrifice bulls, oxen, like multiple oxen. So this thing would have been pretty big. And depending on what archaeological site you favor, the one I would tend toward would be what's called the Jebel al-Laws today. They, they have found the, what they think is this altar that Moses built. And of course, it's very hard to tell because it's been a very long time. But uh, it's, it's very, worth, very much worth investigating. And he also builds these 12 pillars. So it, it would have been impressive just because it was not to be an object of worship does not mean it could not have been impressive. And he gathers the young men. There was no formal priesthood yet. Later on, this will only be for Aaron and his family. But right now he gets the young men because you need the young men because you're going to be lugging oxen and bulls up on this thing. And he sacrifices them. And he says there were burnt offerings and peace offerings. We'll talk about these more in Leviticus. A burnt offering was totally consumed. You'd bring it up onto the altar and you would burn it up. A peace offering, you would butcher first, take the meat, burn up the parts that were inedible, and the rest of it would be taken and eaten in a ceremonial meal. So we have both of these going on. And he saves the blood because, of course, remember, you're supposed to drain the blood before you sacrifice it. We're going to talk about that more as well. And he throws half of it onto the altar, consecrating it. And then he reads the book of the law again. And the people, again, formally agree to it. And he takes the blood and throws the other half on the people. So whether this was 
sprinkling over the whole congregation, whether this was just over the 70 elders that we're going to talk about in a minute. Some people have speculated that it was on the 12 pillars that represented the people. It says people, so I'm going to assume it's that one. But why blood? You got to think about that, right? Why blood? Why did something need to die? Well, we know this well as Christians, don't we? Blood symbolized guilt that had been paid for by an innocent sacrifice. And this is what the law would be for the people. It would be a way to cover their sins through the sacrifices of blood and, of bulls and goats and lambs and things like that. Now, we think with New Testament minds and we say, but how is the blood of a bull or a lamb supposed to cover your sin? Well, it can't. Only Jesus could do that. But what it was teaching the people is that your sin, your guilt, requires payment in blood. It requires death. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, very familiar verse for us. He first, before this verse, is describing this very scene that we're discussing now in Exodus 24. But he says in verse 22, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So these people were standing before a holy God. They were already covenant lawbreakers. They needed those sins covered. And we've not examined the sacrificial system yet. That will come in Leviticus. But all of that was to cover sin and to anticipate the greater sacrifice that Jesus would provide at the cross. Jesus himself at the Last Supper said in Matthew 26, he also said in Mark and Luke, when he, he handed out the cup, this is my blood of the covenant. He's deliberately calling back to this passage, to the inauguration of the old covenant, because he himself was about to go and shed his blood on that cross. And he hands that memorial to the, to the disciples. And he says, this is my blood of the new covenant. And when we together share in the bread and the cup of communion, it is reminiscent of what they did here in eating the, the sacrifices that had been made. Now, we're not looking for another sacrifice. It's very important to know. Hebrews makes a very big deal out of the fact that Jesus' sacrifice was once for all. But he's deliberately calling back. This is one reason among many, you need to know your Old Testament. Because the New Testament assumes that you know your Old Testament. And you have to be able to interpret the new by the old and also vice versa. But how much more impact do those words have when Jesus passes the cup and says, This is my blood of the covenant. It's important for us to know this. You cannot come into covenant, shall we say, you cannot have a relationship with God without the shedding of blood. You need Jesus. There is no salvation in any other. There is no way to be saved by your works. There's no way to be saved by church membership or by tithing or by activism or by thinking the right doctrines. It is only through the blood of Jesus that you or anybody else can be saved. That is why we said on Sunday, we proclaim not ourselves, but Christ Paul said, I've determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Evangelism is bringing people into the new covenant. And just as they could not come into the old covenant without the shedding of blood, no one enters into the new covenant without the blood of Jesus Christ being shed. That is what the church is. We're not a social club. We're not a community center. There's elements of all those things. But we are members of the new covenant brought together by the blood of Jesus. There is no greater rejection of the angel or messenger of the Lord than to refuse his blood. 
Say, I would rather trust in myself. I would rather live my life the way I want to and not accept the ceremonial death of Jesus over my own life. That is the most utter blasphemy that any man can commit. It is appointed man to die once and then the judgment, the word says. And unless your answer is the blood of Jesus has covered me and his death counts for mine, you will be out of luck, my friend. But we should be glad to know that you don't have to shed your own blood to be saved because Jesus Christ has already done it for you. It's a gift. By grace, you have been saved through faith. Well, let's look now, verses 9 through 11, and this is the part I've been excited to get to. So let's read these three verses. If you've not read them before, probably raise your eyebrows, which is cool. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, who were Aaron's two oldest sons, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. This passage will forever for me be a reminder of why you need to read your Bible. Not just your devotions for the day, not just the sermon from Sunday and Wednesday, because this passage I came across when I was reading through the whole Bible. You read a couple chapters a day and move through, right? And I hit that, and I, I've been a Christian for a very long time. And I go, I do not remember this. When did this happen? I, did they add that? Well, no, of course. I've just skipped over it because it's in what we call a boring passage of Scripture. It's fascinating, isn't it? Moses, Aaron, and his sons, and 70 elders went up the mountain to eat the covenant meal. Remember, this was a big part of how you solidified that covenant was the meal. So they, with Moses, went beyond that boundary that had been marked. Remember, if anything crosses this line, it needs to be stoned, animal or man. And they go up this mountain, up past the burning fire and the lightnings and the shouts and the thunders. And, and they're probably shaken in their boots, right? And they go up past that and they come up to a point where it says they beheld the Lord. And they sat down and ate the sacrifices that Moses had just made down at the, at the altar down below. What must that have been like? Now, immediately, we have other verses ringing in our ears. So let's talk about this. John 1 verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God. In Exodus 33 verse 20, so there's just nine chapters away, Moses is going to ask the Lord to see his glory, and God will tell him, No man shall see me and live. You say, okay, well, what's the deal? Because right there, it says they saw the God of Israel. Samson's parents, when they saw the angel of the Lord and offered a sacrifice, they said, we're dead because we've seen God. There's lots of little passages like that. So what's going on here? Well, here's the first thing to know. The Bible knows what it says. So we can't say, ah, see, major contradiction. No, I don't think Moses would include this story and then nine chapters later make up another one. He says, oh, but no one can see God. John knows what he was talking about. He knew his Old Testament just as well as anybody did. So I think it's best to understand verses like that to refer to an unhindered view of God. God is going to tell Moses in chapter 33, he says, I can't show you everything. 
It says, what I will do, I will make my glory pass before you and you will see my back. Or that even can be translated, you'll see what comes after me. It's like, I'll pass through and then everything is just going to be so amazing and glorious that you'll see what, what comes after. So even when God gives Moses a glimpse of himself, it's only a partial glimpse. And note very carefully that what they describe about God is what was under his feet. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. In fact, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, when it says they saw the Lord, it translates it this way. They saw the place where the God of Israel stood. So that is how they interpreted this passage, that they, they saw where the Lord was, but they did not get a clear and direct view of God. And he might say, okay, so what's going on here? This sapphire stone, this, this pavement, as it were, it says, beneath the feet of the Lord. Well, this was a lot of fun for me to chase down. So I'm excited to walk through this with you. If you track down other places in scripture where men saw God's throne, you can figure this out. And it makes this passage, I think, much more easy for us to understand. Let's first of all, take a look at what we have here. What do we have when we see the presence of the Lord in this chapter? First of all, you've got the fire and the lightning and the thunders and the clouds and the voices shouting out. That's all on the mountain. That's element number one. Number two, when you go up above where the fire and all that was, there's the expanse, it says, like sapphire. So it's an expanse. It's, it's almost like the sky, it says, like clearness. And number three, you have the Lord above that. They see the Lord and where his feet are, and that's where the pavement of sapphire is, and then you have all the fire beneath it. So there's that. Now you might want to turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 1. This is the second one. There's three major passages we're going to look at. Exodus 24 is one, and Ezekiel chapter 1 is number 2. And I'm not going to read this whole passage because it is quite long, but I'll just summarize where we are here. Ezekiel is at the river. He's in exile in Babylon. And he's come to the river and he says, all of a sudden in the distance, there's a big, mighty, thunderous storm cloud. And out of that cloud, he sees the glory of the Lord approaching him. And the way he describes it is that there's these angels that are coming, these living creatures, it says, who have four faces and these wings and they move like lightning. And, and let me just read some of it. Ezekiel 1 verse 13. It says, as for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright and out of the fire went forth lightning. This is where you get that famous wheels within wheels full of eyes that next to each one of these angels was a wheel and it moved in, in right angles when they were moving forward and sideways. And then in verse 22, over the heads of the living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads. So an expanse it spread out above their heads. Sounding familiar? And above the expanse, verse 26, above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. So this sounds very familiar. It's much more detailed, but
but it's very familiar. Number one, you have fire and lightning and clouds and thunders and voices at the bottom. And, it, and he says it was in these angels that moved. It says that when they flapped their wings and when they spoke, it was like the sound of thunder and rushing waters. And when they moved, it was like lightning and smoke and fire surrounded them. Above them, you had this great expanse that he says was like crystal. I found this fascinating. The word for crystal in Hebrew is kerak, and it means ice. It's not the word crystal, it's the word ice. Every other place in the Old Testament, it is translated ice, unless it's in the context of gemstones or things like that. So spread out like a great expanse of ice or crystal above them. Number three, above that, the Lord was seated on a throne, and he says it was a sapphire throne, which of course is a brilliant blue color, right? And there's the Lord seated. So you're seeing the same kind of description that Ezekiel sees that they saw on Mount Sinai. But he adds to this, these living creatures, which are called elsewhere the seraphim, which means the burning ones with the four faces of the man and the ox and the eagle and the a lion. And six wings, they didn't have feet, they had hooves and there was wheels next to them. So that's, this is like the fire that you're seeing on Mount Sinai. But they don't see the angels in there. But they do hear lots of voices coming out of, coming out of those things, right? Then there's the great expanse, which they said in the book of Exodus was like sapphire. Ezekiel says it was like ice or crystal. But above that was the Lord seated on his throne, which was like a sapphire. So imagine a brilliantly shining sapphire. You're standing at an angle to where it's coming through the ice or the crystal. It is going to shine with that same blue color, isn't it? Remarkable. Now let's look at Revelation chapter 4. This is when John is in the spirit and he's caught up into the presence of the Lord. And he sees the throne of God. He says, from the throne, see if you can track with me now, came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. You see the same thing. Fire and lightning below, thunder, shouts, burnings. Number two, the great expanse like crystal glass. And the word that they use in the Greek is krystalos, which again doesn't mean crystal, it means Ice. And they would refer to the word ice metaphorically to describe gemstones. Number three, you have the Lord on his throne above that. John doesn't tell us what color the throne was, but if we can make the connection to Ezekiel and to Exodus, it's a sapphire throne. He also has these seraphim, these burning ones with the four faces. Also, both Ezekiel and Revelation describe a rainbow above the Lord. Ezekiel just mentions there's a rainbow. John says it's an emerald rainbow, a green rainbow. That's fascinating to think about, isn't it? And both of those passages describe the Lord like shining metal, like reds and brown colors. Those are the three major passages. Can you see how they all have the same elements when they're describing what the throne of God looks like? The fire and the thunder and the smoke beneath, usually connected to those, those shouting four-faced seraphim, the burning ones. Then there's the expanse, which is like glass or ice or crystal. And above that is the Lord, and his throne is a sapphire, which would make the, the expanse beneath him shine blue. 
And above that, not mentioned in Ezekiel, there's, there's a green rainbow. Ezekiel chapter 10 describes the same thing, but in just fewer details. Think of Isaiah chapter 6, when he says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. He sees the throne of God, and it says that there was smoke that filled the house of the Lord. And there were the four living creatures shouting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Again, it, it just lines up with what's being described. What does this tell us? The glory of the throne of God appears consistently to his prophets. Exodus was like 1450 BC. Ezekiel was about 586, somewhere in there BC, almost a thousand years later. John was around 90 AD, so that's about 500 years later. Different times, different cities, different people. But when they see the throne and the glory of the Lord, they describe it the same, but not exactly the same. They describe it according to the perspective they were given, which is exactly what we should expect. Why does this matter? Because it's not made up. It's real. That's what God's throne room looks like. We've seen it three times in the Bible, three major times. And each circumstance makes sense. Ezekiel, when he sees the throne of the Lord approaching, he sees him coming from a distance. So he's got that angled look. We can see more detail and he can see above the expanse more. When John was there, John was in the presence of the Lord. He was above the expanse. Meanwhile, you've got Exodus and it's, it's very limited in its detail. It's got the fire, it's got the sapphire expanse and there's the Lord. So why are they not getting a clear view of the Lord? And how does this enable us to hold John 1.18 and Exodus 33 that no one has seen God? Because they're probably seeing the Lord's glory from below. They're seeing him through, as in refracted through that blue expanse. There he is. They're not getting a clear glimpse, but that's where the Lord is. How radical is that? Hebrews chapter 8 verse 5 says that the temple and the tabernacle were made to be a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. We're going to talk more about this as we get into the book of Exodus further. But I, I thought this was so cool. We needed to talk about that. The tabernacle of God and the temple, which came later, was to be an earthly picture of God's presence on earth as it is in heaven, as well as a reminder of what they had seen at Mount Sinai. So we're going to take what we know about the Lord and what we know about his presence, and you're, you're going to, in a sense, tip it on its side because the tabernacle, you didn't go up, you went in. And let's, let's take a look at this here. You had the inner court where the sacrifices would be made. It was sometimes called the court of the men because the men were allowed to go in. It had two things. It had the bronze altar where they would offer the sacrifices and it had the bronze laver or the bronze sea. This is where the priests would wash themselves. It was an enormous, basically a giant tub that they would wash themselves in ceremonially. And then there was the altar where they would offer the sacrifices. So what does this remind us of? It reminds us of, first of all, before they came to the Lord at Mount Sinai, what did they have to do? They had to consecrate themselves for three days. Do you remember that? Wash your clothes, wash yourself, and be prepared to meet the Lord. And, as we just read, they needed to offer a sacrifice to the Lord before they could be brought into his, his covenant. Then you go inside to the tabernacle proper, and you have what's called the holy place. There were three things in the holy place. There was the lampstand, which you've seen pictures of the giant menorah before. But the lampstand was to be carved 
in the shape of a flower. We're going to get into this. It's actually to look like a water lily. And it was supposed to be floral and beautiful. And it was to be always burning and to never go out. Which reminds us of what? The burning bush where Moses first encountered the Lord. When he saw the fire that was burning the bush that didn't go out. There was also the incense altar. That was gold and that was in the holy place. And they would be constantly burning incense on it. It was an incense that you couldn't make. If you made it anywhere, you would be killed. It would be, this is what God's presence smells like and nothing else smells like it. And that represents what? The pillar of cloud where the Lord was. We're going to see the Lord bring Moses into that cloud at the end of this chapter. And you also had, as we used to call it, the showbread, which is kind of a confusing term. But it's the new way that they translate it, I think it's much better, is the bread of the presence. There was a golden table, and they would make six unleavened loaves of bread, and they, or 12. They'd make two stacks of six, and they represented the 12 tribes of Israel, which calls back to this very covenant meal they're having in the presence of the Lord. That it was supposed to represent the presence of the people in God's house. But there was one final place in the tabernacle, in the temple, as you know, the Holy of Holies which was separated by what? A big blue curtain. The veil of the temple, as it was called. It was to be made with blue and purple and red thread, intricately woven, huge and thick that you couldn't get through. And what was on the other side of that? The Ark of the Covenant. And it says repeatedly in the Bible that the Lord sits enthroned above the cherubim, which were carved on top of the Ark. So what you have here is a picture of, of the, of the presence of God. You have the throne of the Lord, the Ark of the Covenant. You've got the blue veil of the temple, which is the expanse that separates. On the other side, you have the fire and the smoke that, that represents the burning that happens when the Lord moves. That was always at the bottom of his glory and his presence. So it's not only a picture of the Lord's glory moving. It's not only a picture of their sojourn in the wilderness and, and their finding God at Mount Sinai. There's a whole wealth of symbolism that we could get into. It represents the earth itself. You have the earth and the water in the, outer court, or in the inner court. Then you have the lights and the stars and the second heaven in the holy place. And then you have the Lord's third heaven, as Paul calls it in the book of Corinthians. It's a picture of the Garden of Eden. It's a picture of the new Jerusalem. We'll address all of that in due time. But what we are to see here is that God had allowed his people to approach his presence. Not just Moses now but all of the people represented through these elders. But they couldn't come all the way. And they would always be represented in the holy place by the bread of the presence. But they would never be represented in the holy of holies, but once a year when the blood had to be come and sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant. This was the limitation of the Old Covenant. The limitation of the law of Moses, that it could bring you right to where God was, but it couldn't bring you to him. There was always that separation that remained. But then something remarkable happened. God came down to us. Jesus himself came down. Walk through, through the tabernacle with me one more time. He offered himself as a sacrifice on the altar. And he washed us in the water of baptism. He's the bread of life. He's the light of the world. 
And when Jesus died, Mark 15, 38, the earth rocked, the sky was darkened, and the veil of the temple was ripped in two. The veil of the temple, which represents that expanse beneath the throne of God that Israel and nobody else could ever come through, had been ripped open because now access to God had been purchased by the blood of Jesus. A greater sacrifice. The, the sacrifices of Moses could take you right up to the edge. And if you were like Moses, you could come even closer and even see the afterglory of the Lord. But only in Jesus Christ are you welcomed into the presence of the Lord. Better yet, you host the presence of the Lord. Because the temple has been destroyed, but as Stephen taught us, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit now. God's Holy Spirit dwells within you. And there is nothing keeping you from fellowship and relationship and covenant with God. Isn't that wonderful? When John saw the throne room in the book of Revelation, what was his perspective? The elders and Moses saw it from beneath. Ezekiel saw it from a distance. But John is seeing the Lord face to face as he is in the presence of the Lord. Nothing was left to prevent him from coming to God because Jesus Christ had welcomed him. So well. The privilege of the Israelites in coming to the Lord was great, greater than anyone else in the world. Ours is greater because we can come directly to the Father in the name of Jesus Christ. And it shall be greater still because the day is going to come, as it says in the end of the book of Revelation, the dwelling place of God is with men. There will be no more sea, no more sun, moon, and stars, no more temple because God will be right there with us a greater restoration than even the Garden of Eden was. And it's all been bought by the blood of Jesus. If you have not yet bowed the knee to God and say, I must be covered and washed in the blood, then you are on the outside of this. But we are here today inviting you to find your place in God's house. Verse 12 through 18, we'll wrap it up here. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So they eat the covenant meal. It's been confirmed. They are now in covenant with the Lord. It's done. And apparently, although it doesn't narrate it, Moses went back down because God is going to call him back up. This time he says, I'm going to give you the tablets. We're all familiar with those tablets, right? We've seen Moses carrying the, the Ten Commandments, and that is exactly what would be on them according to Deuteronomy chapter 9. These are the ones that he would break later, but God himself is going to make these and hand them to him. Moses goes up with Joshua. We've seen him one time before. He was the one that led the army against Amalek when they fought. And Moses puts Aaron and Hur in charge of the people. 
which seems like a good idea, but if you know your Bible, it's not going to end very well, unfortunately. But Moses entered the cloud of the Lord. That's, as I said, that's symbolized by that altar of incense that was in the holy place. Every near encounter with God that they had had was represented in the holy place. And the holy of holies was God's presence itself. And he's going to receive more from the Lord. And from chapter 25 through 31, which is our next section, he's going to get the designs for the tabernacle. He's going to show him how to build the altar, how to build the Ark of the Covenant. He's going to tell him how the priests are to be dressed. He's going to tell him who he wants to build the tabernacle. And according to Deuteronomy 9.9, he will be up there for 40 days and 40 nights and not eat anything because he's miraculously sustained by God himself. And it says the people saw him go up and they saw him go up into the fire, which is why after 40 days they're going to say, "Uh, can we even be sure he's still alive? And I can't help but see a picture here that our covenant has been made and the one that brought about the covenant for us has gone up to the presence of the Lord and we're waiting for him to return. Isn't that what we're waiting for? The day when Jesus comes back. And don't we also face the same temptation to say, he's not coming back. We've got to figure something out. But we cannot do that. I close with 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 9-11. through 11 where Paul is talking about the superiority of the new covenant to the old. And we just read about the old covenant, and it's a glorious scene. I wish it could have been there, really do. But look at what he says. If there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, which is the old covenant, only thing the law could bring was condemnation. We learned about that in Romans chapter 7, didn't we? If there was glory, and there was, in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness which is the new covenant in Christ, the gospel must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory, the old covenant, has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. Oh, it's so wonderful what God did through Moses. But that pales in comparison to the death of Jesus and his rising from the dead on the third day and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and the spread of the gospel around the world to every tribe and tongue and nation, people willing to give their blood for one another in the name of Jesus Christ. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, the old covenant was always going to come to an end. But much more will what is permanent have glory. You, Christian, are a beneficiary of a much more glorious covenant than Moses ever saw. As wonderful as it was, seeing the expanse beneath the feet of the Lord, going up into the fire and into the cloud and encountering God, it's a glorious, wonderful thing, but what you have is more precious. Don't forget it. Don't let the fact that the Lord has been up waiting for his return for so long, cause you to drift away and seek after other things. You must remember. You must remember what it is you have in Christ Jesus. Don't go after those other gods and bow down to them. Don't look to somebody else for answers. Don't put your trust in anything else other than the blood of Jesus because it is only the blood of Jesus that has wonder-working power and is mighty to save us.